Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker. The chair will put Mr. Speaker. The bill is passed. We've created a commitment to America. Those in favor say aye. We are now 20 days without a House Speaker and 25 days until the government runs out of funding. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Control, a podcast where we look around the corner at the challenges and priorities facing the 2023 Congress. I'm one of your hosts, Annalise Keller. And I'm your other host, Brendan Buck. We are recording this Monday afternoon. It's been a little over a week since we last spoke with you. I think we thought about recording a few times, but things were happening so quickly it didn't make any sense. Uh, So since we last spoke, we still do not have a House Speaker. Steve Scalise dropped out, didn't even go to the floor for a vote. Jim Jordan then got the nomination. Then Jim Jordan lost the vote three times. And then Jim Jordan was removed as the nominee uh, of the conference to be Speaker. There was a little dance with with Patrick McHenry to potentially give him some power. That flamed out quickly. We'll talk about that. The president gave a national address uh, asking for supplemental funding for Israel, Ukraine, our border, uh, other things. Don't forget the government runs out of money uh, in the middle of of November. Uh, But tonight, all of the candidates, all nine of them will gather for a candidate forum. We'll have yet another conference election for speaker on Tuesday. And then who the hell knows what happens from there. Okay, before we jump into the nine-way speaker race, um, let's talk a little bit about Scalise. Uh, he obviously flamed out uh, him and McCarthy's, uh, you know, ongoing uh, feud. Kind of was a factor, and and ended up here with Jordan coming to the floor for for what we saw uh, three failed vote series on the floor. I told the conference it was an honor to be their um, speaker designee, but I felt it was important that we all. We all know, get an answer to the question if they wanted me to continue in that, um, in that role. And so we put the question to them. They made a different decision. Um, I think what's interesting about Jordan is that he didn't really seem to have a strategy. Uh, he kind of followed the McCarthy playbook of just taking it to the floor and attempting to kind of chip away at, at folks' votes. Um, but kind of contrasting with McCarthy. He didn't end up picking any up any more votes instead continued to kind of lose votes. Um, And, you know, you can imagine that he had the majority of McCarthy's operation kind of making calls, doing support for him. We also saw kind of a a bit of a pressure campaign. Um, But, you know, apart from those sort of pieces of of what Jordan was doing in hopes of getting to 217, you know, to me, there really didn't seem to be much of a strategy uh, beyond sort of a pressure campaign. Which is all he's ever really known, right? I mean, that's that's his MO is is you you bully and, and you try to pressure people and you kind of use the outside game. And there was always an open question of whether an outside game works for these things. And I, I think once again, it was proven that the inside game is, is much more important. Um, you know, but that is, let's not overlook that he was able to knock out Steve Scalise. And I think Steve Scalise got a really raw deal there. Um, but that little now new rivalry, I, I think really encapsulates how broken the conference is. I mean, Steve Scalise won the race against Jordan and then was not the person who actually ended up going to the floor as the nominee. Um, 
And that's when the moderates struck back. I mean, this is, I, I was relatively skeptical that they would do this. I, I've, I've seen them fold so many times. Uh, and I really did think that whoever wins that vote behind closed doors, if it is the more conservative candidate, Jordan, you know, in that case, would probably get there. And I just didn't see these moderates standing up for themselves, but they, they finally did. Um, and so what does that mean going forward? I, I think you can't make assumptions in the way that you used to, uh, how much they're willing to sort of replay that or somebody not named Jordan. I don't know. But I think it's going to have to make the conservatives think twice going forward that they can't just steamroll moderates. And that you know will probably play itself out in a number of ways going forward. If, if for once they can have to think that they're not the only ones playing that game anymore, um, maybe it's a positive development. Maybe it just means things are going to, to break down even more than they have been. Yeah. Before we move on from Jordan, I think, you know, there's, there's kind of one narrative that, that I was kind of seeing everywhere that was, um, you know, just frustrating. I think there was this, you know, the, are the people sort of crying out for Jim Jordan and, you know, are the Republicans just sort of demanding Jim Jordan become speaker? Um, I think we were seeing a lot of, you know, some of them, you know, self-identifying firebrands kind of say that and make those claims. Um, I would just say that that to me is pretty delusional. I think most Americans, most Republicans, um, most Republican districts, I, I think Jim Jordan's name ID would be, you know, in the single digits. I don't think this would be, I don't think this is something that, um, you know, anyone apart from a real s- small vocal minority of Republican primary voters is, you know, sort of demanding. So I, I just think that. Yeah, it just kind of shows what little um, uh, bubbles that a lot of these folks live in, that they assume that the American people are rising up and and demanding Jim Jordan. No doubt he's conservative, uh, or excuse me, popular in, in conservative circles, but um you know, people willing to go to absolute war for him. Um, and I think that's, so we're, you know, we're going to obviously talk about what what's to come. I think a really open question here is, uh, do Jordan's allies need to seek revenge now? And I, I assume they feel like they need to seek revenge, whether that comes on the next candidate or down the line a little further or the next speaker, what they actually get the gavel. Um, you know, the it's clear that the moderates were seeking revenge for taking out Scalise, are we going to have another situation now where where Jordan's folks want to want to take revenge? Yeah, and I think some of those moderates. I mean, you did see some of them drop off in the private conference vote um, for Jordan in a, in a large measure, which I, I you know I, I do think it's worth pointing out that some of these you know more centrist moderate Republican members did throw their support behind Jordan, uh, you know in in part because of the concern of of a primary. I mean, I think I've, I've seen a lot of folks threatening a primary for those moderate members who voted against Jordan. So I think, you know, there was certainly an undercurrent of that. Um, but, you know, I was surprised in some respect, I guess in some way I shouldn't be surprised by this at all, but the, the idea that McHenry could be empowered sort of briefly while Jordan continued to rally support. I mean, he knew he didn't have the support. He didn't have a strategy. Um, it seemed like, at least from my perspective, you know, not the worst idea in the world to give McHenry a little bit of authority for a little while while Jordan could stay in the mix and kind of continue building his support so that he could become speaker. 
Yeah, I mean, that's why he endorsed it, right? Um, I think he wanted to kind of have a seat at the table, uh, sort of training wheels speakership for Jordan where he can, you know, show that those holdouts that he could be trusted and vote for me at the end of the year, buy some time. I mean, he also didn't have any other real options, so he pivoted to, you know, what may keep him alive. Um, but yeah, let's talk about the the McHenry empowerment saga, um, uh, a, a short-lived movement, which I guess is still alive. I, I certainly wouldn't call it dead. Um, and, and we talked about last time how the Speaker Pro Tem could potentially have authority and power to legislate. Um, I actually wrote something for the New York Times. I assume all of our uh, devoted listeners have read that, um, but basically lay out two options for w- what you could do with McHenry. One, you could vote to empower him, and that's what the House was, or at least what, what Republicans were considering, and there was a frantic day, felt like a week, but it was like a day where uh, Jordan embraced that. It looked like there was all this momentum for it. Democrats seemed to be on board with it, and you were going to have this weird power-sharing agreement between McHenry and Jordan and Democrats. Um, but, of course, n- nothing is easy. So the House It feels Repo- like it was a few hours. Yes, Maybe it, it was, was only a few day. hours. House Republicans went into absolute meltdown um, and said that they, they couldn't tolerate that. Um, even though it wasn't really giving Democrats anything and it wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't electing a Democratic speaker. It was just moving forward with McHenry. Um, but they were not ready to give up the fight yet. So um, they they shelved that idea. I still think that if none of these nine folks ends up becoming speaker, that the McHenry options are still alive, either voting to empower him or the other thing that I raised which is uh, just have him try to legislate without any sort of formal vote. Um, as I've been saying, the rules of the House are whatever 218 members say they are. So if McHenry brings up a bill or a resolution and wants a vote on it, someone will challenge that. Someone will say, that's out of order. You don't have the authority to bring that up. And the parliamentarian will will rule or, or make uh, a recommendation on the ruling. And... Um, if they decide that it's out of order or a ruling like that, the House can vote to overrule that. The House can appeal that that ruling. At that point, you know, if 218 members say they want to keep moving forward with it, they can. Um, so I still think we shouldn't rule out that possibility. If we get really stuck and there's needed action on Israel or there's needed action to keep the government open, that may be our sort of break glass plan. And you've talked to some folks who were around when this law was passed and that was kind of their perspective right so in 2003 when they when they drafted this rule I mean, there's a debate about whether or not um the speaker pro tem can can legislate or if his job is just to oversee an election and most people have been reading the and the parliamentarian has been reading into it that the the intent of that rule is just for him to oversee an election nothing else, which I find crazy because in the context of 9-11, you would think that they would want the pro tem to be able to legislate if they needed to. But everybody's understanding is that it's just the, uh, the their only job is to, is to put in a new speaker. And I asked people who, um, who were around back then, and they were like, yeah, that was what we wrote because we could never even contemplate the idea that they couldn't quickly elect the speaker. <laughs> this was in the, the Tom DeLay era where they're like, you know, the idea that 
the conference nominates someone and that person would fail on the floor, like never even register for 20 days. And now we've done this like several times. Yeah. Um, it, I think it just kind of, kind of speaks to how far we have, we have fallen and, um, uh, yeah. So, well, I, 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 I encourage people to keep that in, in their back pocket. Clearly there are members who are still interested in that. You got Mike Kelly and David Joyce, who've got these resolutions on the flip side. You've also seen pictures of a resolution from conservatives already drafted to, uh, vacate McHenry from his position. Um, so this saga will continue. I mean, I think the bottom line here for people is, uh, this is a conference that does not give up easily. It does not learn lessons easily. When you think you've hit rock bottom, they think you can keep digging. And so they're going to keep digging for a while. And, um, you know, eventually it may actually feel arbitrary, like the day they wake up and decide they want to pivot, but that's often how these things go. So maybe we can avoid that. Maybe one of these nine people is the, the special one that uh, fate is, is set for them to be the next speaker of the house. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to play a game uh, with these nine speaker candidates. We're going to quickly run through them and I'm going to ask Brendan and he's going to ask me if we can name one uh, solitary fact about any of these Just me? individuals. I'm the only one? Okay. No, I think I think we'll both we give it both a try. It. Okay. You can go first. Are we pulling up the list? Okay. I think we're going to go first to Immer, who before we jump into our fun facts, we'll say... He's probably the front runner currently. McCarthy res- gave him his endorsement pretty early. Yeah, I want to come back to Tom Emmer and the, the Emmermentum so much as that exists that everybody is talking about. Um, what do we know about Tom Emmer? I mean, th- th- this is an easy one. He was NRCC chairman. He's the current whip. Like, he's not the obscure one. This is a, a big, uh, the, the obscure caucus is well represented in this list of nine. He's, he's not one of them. <laughs> yeah. So let's start. Let's go next to uh, then uh, Dan Muser. What do you got? Dan Muser, um, I don't know that I could tell you much of anything about him. Michigan. Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, close enough. Um, yeah, I don't know anything I think he's about a problem him. solver. Is he? Yeah. Okay. So most of these people, so I left the Hill in January 2019. Most of these people were either like freshmen uh, when I left or have come since I left. So um if Dan Muser becomes Speaker of the House, I'm in big trouble because I don't know anything about him. Um, would, what I, think, you, what? I think everyone's in trouble. I don't think okay. anyone knows anything about him. Okay, perfect. Um, okay, Gary Palmer. I do know a bit about Gary Palmer. He was the policy chair. He's like a super curmudgeon-y um, policy guy, um, like you know, he's the type of guy who like shows up with, you know, stacks of paper. He wants to talk to you about his, his plan. And I don't know that he quite grasps the, the politics of, of, you know, the, that side of things, but he, he like fancies himself very in the weeds on, on policy. Yeah, that's right. That's what I was going to kind of say. Uh, Freedom Caucus came in after, after Tea Party, post Tea Party. He's, he's been in office for a while. Yeah, he's this, he's this weird like Freedom Caucus leadership like sort of crossover, like hardcore conservative, um, but doesn't really align with what you like. At least he's not out front in the way that a lot of these guys are. Um, all right, Pete Sessions. The Eagle. Uh, former House Rules Chairman. He's the yeah. He's the he's the most of like my era of yeah, any of these folks. Yeah, he was at the leadership table forever. Um, has all kinds of weird inspirational quotes and sayings that he throws out. Um, 
is was uh, known for saying, you know, just kind of oddball stuff, uh, talking to reporters all the time, telling them stuff that was true, wasn't true. <laughs> You're never quite sure. You couldn't yeah. really. Uh, yeah, his team was always sort of running around making, trying to clean up whatever he had just leaked or leaked the wrong thing or whatever. So um, leaker. that would be a fascinating choice uh, to be speaker. Yeah, he's been around yeah, the I know block he, for a while. Uh, he has a thing for Skittles. Oh, okay. So, yeah, I didn't That's know. all I got on him. Yeah. Um, all right, Austin Scott of Georgia. Okay, I do know Austin Scott as a fellow Georgian. Um, the fun fact about him is he was, and I don't know if he still is, was very obsessed with Red Snapper. Oh. He, he used to always come into the speaker's office and talk about like how the we, issue or we, like eating it. We need to vote on something to do with like the management of Red Snapper off the coast. Yeah, and that was, was a mobile thing. Something that he, I don't know what the details were, but he was just, it got him fired up. He was always demanding votes on this. That was like what he what he wanted. Um, I think it's like the days of how how long you can fish. Yeah, for something snapper. like that. It, it, he was passionate, passionate yeah. about it. Okay. The most important thing is he Fisherman, went to- Fisherman, sportsman. Yeah. He's, a, he's a good old boy. <laughs> the most important thing about him is he went to the University of Georgia, as did I, so. Big, big uh, pro Austin Scott guy here. Um, okay. The only thing I know about him is that he's already run for speaker unsuccessful. Got a little taste of it and wants more. <laughs> Sticking around. Um, okay. We're almost done. Kevin Hearn. Actually, we're not. <laughs> There's a lot of them. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know much about, I mean, he's RSC chair, obviously. Um, I, I, I don't, I don't know if I've ever spoken to the man. Um, they, I guess he's a McDonald's franchisee. Oh, yeah. He's the one who's been giving out, like, breakfast sandwiches yeah. and, and burgers or something. I will say being chair of the RSC, like, is not a small thing. You get yourself in front of a lot of members. The Republican Study Committee is the largest conservative caucus in the House. It's, like, got a 100 members or something. My old boss, Tom Price, was the chair when I was there. Um, and you lead a meeting every single week, and it is, like, a little quasi-leadership operation that you can set up. So... That's not yeah, the worst thing the in the world for him. House Freedom Caucus before everyone joined and then yeah. felt that it wasn't conservative enough. Exactly. Freedom Caucus is more exclusive than the, the RSC. They started letting anybody, anybody into yes, the RSC. Exactly. Um, okay, Jack Bergman. What do we got? Military gentleman, uh, veteran, seems to be... The, he, he was first out there offering himself up to be speaker when I don't think anybody was really asking. Um, well he had heard from a lot of his colleagues, I mm. think, as, as, as all of them are hearing from their colleagues to, to run, imploring them to run. Yeah, I don't have a whole <laughs> lot here. Respect his service. I don't, I don't know anything else about him. Um, I was in the Michigan delegation, so I'm a little bit more familiar with him. He's Upper Peninsula. Uh, oh, so They say that's a lovely part of the country. Good yeah, for him. Except in the winter. Okay. Um, okay. Mike Johnson. I have nothing. Uh, also a former RSC chair, um, carries a briefcase. Oh, he was the, he was a talk show, a radio talk show guy. Was he? Is that right? I don't think that's right. We'll have to look at Maybe I up. don't know anything <laughs> don't about know. him. Um, I, 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 he's the type of person who has like a legitimate, like credible case. I mean, he, he again was the chair of the RSC, um, is like, he's on good committees he's thought of as a serious person um i don't know him um but he he is a little less like what are you doing man um like some of these folks are okay our producers uh let me know that i'm correct he was a radio show host talk show host um 
All right. I think we have one more. I think Byron Donalds of Florida is our last uh, candidate of the nine. So this is the one I'm trying to get some odds on. Um, I think he's got the best sort of outside shot chance of any of these people. Freedom Caucus member, new member, um, very sort of out front, um, does a lot of media. The members love that. Um, he, I, I do think that a lot of these guys would love to have the first black speaker of the house be a Republican. And I think that will like kind of quietly go unsaid as a big, uh, motivator for him. Um, he just, he, if you're looking for a, who is a turning of the page, no real affiliation with the old days, uh, and really speaks to the new moment of conservatives, I think this could be the person. Now, he's like in his second term, like mm-hmm. totally undefined. And I, you know, I scares the heck out of me to have any of these folks who've never done anything be speaker. Um, but that's where I'm uh, contra the emermentum. I am, I am, uh, I'm keeping an eye on, on the Byron Donalds for speaker race. Yeah, I feel a little bit differently. Um, I think Emmer will probably come out of conference. Now, whether, you know, he's able to get 217 on the floor, I think that's a different question. But Well, let's talk about the process. Yeah, let's do that. Um, so it's pretty straightforward. Um, they'll go to conference. And my understanding is the lowest uh, vote getter will be removed on each round. Until somebody gets a majority. So if Tom Emmer gets a majority on the first ballot, we're done. Um, but if he gets 48%, they only remove the person who came in last, Dan Muser. We'll see. Uh, <laughs> maybe not. I don't, Jack Bergman. They will, you will know who got last because they'll be the one who's sort of tapped on the shoulder and said they need to leave. So that would be fun to watch. Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Who will, who will be removed first? Muser, Bergman... What do you got? Um, yeah, I think it's one of those two. Okay. So yes, they. So let's not skip ahead past the uh, all important um, candidate forum, which will be tonight. Which man, if you sit through all of that, I think each of the people get a half hour or so, plus some opening remarks and closing remarks. So we're talking about like five straight hours of sitting there listening to people. Uh, pitch yourself um but yes ultimately one of them will theoretically on tuesday become the fourth republican nominee for speaker to come out of the conference and then they will have the open question of do you go straight to the floor do you spend a few days trying to build up support um obviously scalise uh didn't rush to the floor they felt like he had a pretty big gap and i keep getting asked like why didn't he just go to the floor i mean it was a it was a big gap and the people who weren't there were not the easy ones to to bring along um and so then you know i think it's an open question of when they would actually have have a vote but yeah if you can't get 217 we'll be i don't know where we'll be at that point but no no guarantee this time around well, I read, I tried to read most of the like dear colleague and speaker announcement letters. Um, so you don't have to, um, but most of them. Thank were, you for your service. Yeah, of course. Most of them were just so vague. I mean, there was really nothing in there that would set one of them apart from the other. It was a lot of like, we will be transparent. We will return to regular order. We will, um, 
you know, empower members. Like it, it was just sort of a lot of generic language. Nobody was, um, nobody jumped out to me as trying to set themselves apart in that, in that part of the process to, you know, change any of the rules, to deal with the motion to vacate, to kind of address any of the real challenges that I think face the conference. Yeah. I mean, if I'm just being honest, this is a deeply uninspiring list of people. Like I almost can't believe that we're, we're sitting here to this point. Um, like I said, like, you know, Donald is, is interesting to me, but like, I, I don't know, I, I can't like place trust in him. I don't, I don't know enough about him to certainly do that. And Emmer's been around the leadership table for a little while, but otherwise, like these people have had almost no exposure to, um, what it's like to be at the top of leadership. Some of them have barely been in Congress, you know, for a few years. Um, and I got to imagine a lot of the membership is sitting there thinking like, these are our options. Like, what have we done? Um, you know, uh, the, the learning curve on whoever is going to be next, if it's one of these nine people, is going to be enormous. And even if it's Tom Emmer, um, he's been in leadership for a while, if you count NRCC. But otherwise, he's been, you know, sort of the in the building leadership guy for less than a year. Um, and, you know, when, when Paul Ryan came in and was sort of drafted into leadership, I mean, even he, who was really famous, had been on the national stage, had been in Congress for like nearly 20 years, had done a bunch of high-profile negotiations, was pretty leadership adjacent. Even for him, it was a huge learning curve to step in and be like, okay, you're now your Speaker of the House, and here are all of the things you need to think about that you never even thought about. Well, and there's some apparatus, but not much. I mean, you have to physically come in and, and pull all these people in. I mean, presumably there's a lot of former leadership staff out of a job, but you have to build a team at the same time that you're trying to build the conference. I, I mean, I wouldn't even, yeah, you have to build a, a team, a staff. Uh, I mean, but there are so many things I wouldn't even know where to start to like, just to, to think about that you need to, I mean, you're, you're in charge of the agenda, first of all, um, figuring out where things are, what your strategy is for getting things done. Just like not even having the institutional knowledge, like why, why, why did we get stuck yeah. on this bill that we can't move? Oh, I got to get, I got to learn about that. All the national security stuff that you all of a sudden are responsible for. I mean, there's just a, a, a countless list of things. I mean, you're responsible for negotiating with the Senate. You got to develop a relationship with McConnell um, and, and Schumer. And now you're the House's point person for dealing with the White House. Have you ever spoken with anybody at the White House before? I mean, you, your head is is going to be spinning, and then you're coming in, you know, optimistically, uh, three weeks from a next government funding shutdown uh, or government funding deadline. Um, so, you know, whoever this person is is going to have like deer in headlights, uh, just doing the job, uh, and then you add on top of it that you have these deadlines and things you need to get done. Oh, and then you also have to deal with this Republican conference. Yeah, and a lot of these members, you know, to your earlier point, you know, they haven't moved a lot of legislation on their own. I mean, they don't have a lot of experience. They haven't, you know, maybe been in Congress very long, haven't been, you know, had gavels. I mean, there's just uh, a lot of looming concerns with, with the list we've been given, I think. So this is my, like, my my thing of the, of the day. Um, if one of these people becomes speaker, I think your big winner in all of this, weirdly, ends up becoming Steve Scalise. I think he becomes naturally 
one of the most important majority leaders we've had in a really long time. Maybe go back to like delay. Um, when we when Paul Ryan came in fresh from outside of leadership, I can't tell you how much we had to lean on Kevin McCarthy yeah. as the majority leader. Like so much just catching us up, showing him like how all of these things work, things to be thinking about, someone who'd been in leadership for a while, understood how things worked. We could not have gotten through the first year without Kevin McCarthy. Um, similarly, I think whoever comes in next, Steve Scalise is gonna have incredible um, authority, moral authority, um, at, at an advantage of, of information and be able to, if he uses it, really drive the conference from his position as the number two. Um, and in some ways, I mean, we could spend a whole podcast talking about this, but you know, in some ways there's that, that question of what does this conference need? It seems to think it needs a really weak speaker. They seem to think that they want somebody who doesn't control the agenda, who doesn't you know, dictate amendments, and is just there to like call balls and strikes, and like that's fine in theory. Um, doesn't usually work well in practice. They tend to blame the speaker for all of their own problems. Um, but uh, or do they need a, a strong speaker? Uh, and uh, if this ends up becoming someone who, as you said, they're just sort of offering themselves up as like, I want a transparent process. I want to empower members. I don't want to be a strong speaker. Somebody needs to be in charge of what the house is doing and negotiating. And I think Steve Scalise could be very well positioned to be in that spot and not someone who has to worry about getting kicked out of his job with a motion to vacate. Can't do that yeah. to the majority leader. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, you mentioned Kevin McCarthy. Uh, let's go back to him. He was on Meet the Press on Sunday being pretty circumspect about his future. Look, I don't need the title. I'm going to help in any way I can. I don't when hear I you ruling Israel it out, attack, Mr. Remember? Speaker. Would you rule it out? <laughs> Look, I know you have your job. I'm supporting Tom Emmer, but I'm going to tell you I'm still a member of Congress and I'm going to lead in any capacity I can help to protect America. So what is... What has McCarthy been up to? What do we think he's still kind of leaving that door open for folks to come back to, for him uh, for speaker? I mean, clearly he was at one point able to get, um, you know, two seventeen in this conference. Yeah, I like that we now have a recurring uh, segment. What is Kevin McCarthy doing? <laughs> What's he been up to? <laughs> um, yeah, I'd love to know the last time McCarthy was on Meet the Press. It is not. Um, it is interesting to me that he is now all over the place doing all of these interviews, throwing himself out there. I mean, very clearly, um, he was not helpful to Scalise's bid uh, for speaker. And now the whole thing is in shambles. And he's like very openly talking about what a disaster it is, which is, you know, usually, you know, in his old job, he'd be like, no, no, things are good. We're just figuring it out. He's, he's just like candid as can be. I'm sure in some way he, you know, he finds this like gratifying or validating that they can't figure out who's next. Um, and I'm sure somewhere in his head, he's holding out the hope that they come back around to him. Yeah. It's like you leave your old job and you're sort of secretly you, so you hoping that. You think that's viable? That McCarthy comes back? I think it's possible. I think it's in the realm of possibility. I, I wouldn't rule it out. I would say it's 10%. That's a high. Yeah, I don't. You think it's. I, so he's endorsed Emmer. Um, I, I don't know that that really changes anything. I uh, I don't see him being able to come back, but I, I'm certain that he, he wants to leave that door open, maybe very wide open. Um, if they keep, if, they, if Emmer fails, um, 
or whoever whoever is next fails i, I certainly don't want to assume it's it's emmer um then yeah i mean I, maybe i don't know i think i think we then pivot to, to so McHenry. you think we get a donald's i'm just uh, i i have no issue with with tom emmer i i, I certainly no personal um relationship to speak of um i just have a hard time seeing it uh it's been well documented that he's got a trump issue whether that is a real issue or a perceived issue it doesn't really matter at this point i don't think donald trump like dictates who the speaker is by any stretch but it's very clear that it is perceived as open season from his people that they don't like him and this goes back to i think it's i think it's totally unfair i i I really do apparently some advice he gave candidates about how to deal with trump that got misconstrued and you know things get in trump's head and all of a sudden he doesn't like him and um you know the way he voted on certifying the election i don't know but there is a perception it may be nothing more than a perception but it's a perception that trump doesn't like tom emmer and i'm not going to say that that's the only thing that matters by any stretch. But when you have a four seat margin, it might matter enough. Um, yeah, I would. I mean, it's been my sense that, you know, Trump's endorsement here hasn't really moved the needle. Um, no, I, I get that. It, no, it doesn't. Like, he obviously, it didn't save Jim Jordan. But I think there's a difference between can it get you the speakership and can it prevent you from getting the speakership? Um, you know, to get the speakership, you need everybody. And Trump being for it wasn't enough to get you everybody. But if you are per- perceived as uh, Trump against you, is that enough for four people? Even if they don't like do it under the banner of Trump told me to take you out. But like, do people who don't necessarily want Tom Emmer in the first place feel like it's a very safe place to be? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think we know there's already like those efforts afoot. Well, it, even forget the Trump thing. It just seems odd to me that this conference obviously a minority of the conference, but this minority that has been causing problems, um, that they would come to the conclusion that the right leadership team is Tom Emmer and Steve Scalise. That certainly doesn't feel like a change. You just feel like there needs to be someone with like a bit of a stronger conservative like I just feel like background. if you taken out leadership, you might as well like actually take out leadership put someone new in i mean put someone who's not at the yeah table i mean they, they they basically blocked scalise because he was same old same old and again well tom emmer's only been in the capital for a year as leadership he's been at the nrcc for four years before that and it's kind of has the vibe kind of a leadership still, guy yeah he's definitely not a conservative crusader um i could be totally wrong i'm not making predictions he just doesn't feel like the fit of this conference to me um so we'll We'll see what happens. I'm just, I'm not, uh, he, I understand why he's being called the front runner. I'm just not totally sold that he is likely to get the gavel. Yeah, I think I, I understand what you're saying with that. And I think, you know, if there was a Jim Jordan alternative, that would feel a little bit more natural because he kind of has the the resume to fill the role. I'm struggling to see um, anyone else on this list who could, you know, maybe... Maybe it's a Byron Donalds. I don't know. But he's still sort of, while he's new, doesn't have a lot of the baggage. Does he have sort of the gravitas there? Gravitas, I think, is a big question. I don't look at this list and really see a whole lot of gravitas anywhere. Um, I guess the late breaking news is that Donald Trump sees somebody who has gravitas. He's endorsing Jesus Christ. 
um, <laughs> just come just come across the wire here. Uh, oh I guess he's in New Hampshire and uh, thinks JC is the guy. Um, I don't know that that's uh, likely. Um, I think someone was actually quoted uh, last week as saying, if Jesus Christ came down, I don't think that person could get 217 votes. So we'll see if the Trump endorsement is enough. Um, but he was asked also about Emmer and basically just gloated about how Emmer is sucking up to him now. That sounds uh, about right. That definitely uh, sounds about right. So um, again, I cannot stress this enough. I have no idea <laughs> what's going to happen here. Um, I just, I don't see Emmer as a strong front runner. And the rest of this list is just question mark after question mark after question mark. And if I'm a house member, I got to be sitting there thinking, what did we, what did we do? We got some stuff we actually have to get done here. And these are the people we're going to send into battle for us. Yeah. Thanks, Matt Gates. Um, okay. So let's talk about the most pressing things that we have coming up apart from the speaker's race. Uh, we know that the government's going to be running out of funding here in a little while. I suspect that, um, again, they'll just come in and pass a CR, but clearly, you know, we're running out of days. We have 25 days left. This is, um, something that, you know, House Republicans need to deal with. They need to start getting this, uh, start getting this moving and start moving beyond the speaker's race. Uh, as, as Brennan mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, we had Biden over the weekend calling for a supplemental appropriations request for Ukraine, uh, some Taiwan uh, aid, some Israel aid, uh, some border funding. It's uh, over $100 billion in funding. Um, and interestingly, uh, Speaker or, uh, Leader McConnell was on Face the Nation throwing his weight behind the package um, in support of Biden's effort to uh, move this uh, through Congress. I know there are some Republicans in the Senate and maybe more in the House that mm -hmm. think U Ukraine is somehow different. I view it as all interconnected. Uh, I do think that there are some serious hurdles, both among Senate Republicans and House Republicans, in getting this package across the finish line. But I think there is enough bipartisan support if they can just move past the speaker's race to get something like this done. But um, I mean, one one major concern, if I'm a member of the House and I'm just completely enroiled in this speaker's race, you know, they need to start engaging. They need to start talking with the Senate um, otherwise, they're just going to get completely rolled over and by whatever the Senate sends over. I, I have very little confidence that most of these House members who have been so obsessed with this, focused on this this race, have even bothered to like take a look at what's happening. I mean, they're obviously aware, but I just mean um, the level of attention and focus that something like this would normally have just hasn't existed. Nobody's even talking about this. Um, and you're right. The Senate is going to do... Senate things. They're going to work together in a bipartisan way. I think they're already scheduled the hearings to kind of take a look at what the request is. Um, if the House doesn't get its act together soon, they're going to have this big old thing sitting in their lap and they may be jammed on it and may have to accept it. And maybe that's fine. And that's good. Um, but it could also like throw a total wrench in the speakers. You know, if this is not resolved next week, and all of a sudden somebody has some issues with this package, um, either you don't like Ukraine funding being in it, or you think the border funding is insufficient, or whatever it may be. Um, who knows how that disrupts whatever the process is. It's not hard to imagine with this conference 
that you know it becomes a red line that you can't support the Senate version of the you know supplemental, even though the House is like totally paralyzed and that's ridiculous to like be saying things like that when you can't even like operate. But I wouldn't put it past a lot of them to say you know this is we can't vote for this. It needs to be amended, non-starter, whatever. Um, so that's staring us in the face. This yeah. this challenge. Um, if I'm like you said, if I'm the whatever exists of leadership right now, whoever that is, Scalise, McHenry, whoever, I'm sending our committee chairs over to start having some conversations to make sure that there is a you know house input on whatever this looks like. Yeah, I suspect we'll hear a lot of like 11th hour arguing about what's in the package and then they'll just sort of stick their heads in the ground and vote against it. And then remove whoever the speaker is at the time. Yeah. <laughs> Which is very possible. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, we have, uh, as we alluded, the uh, full government, our government uh, funding deadline that we need to resolve uh, November 17th. I will say if there is any faint silver lining to all of this, it's that it may actually reduce our chances of a government shutdown on November 17th. Yeah, I agree with that. I don't know that at this point it's reasonable to tell the new speaker that they need to have an appropriations plan in place by then, which is what McCarthy was trying to sell. Um, CRs apparently have become very hard to pass, but it feels like whoever the new speaker in is going to be able to come in. Just you know, throw a CR up with, for yeah, get us through the end of the year. With two weeks of the deadline, he, he or she can't say like, you know, they'll be able to turn to the conference and say, give me a break, folks. Like, let's just pass this CR and give ourselves some more time. Um, so he or she. He or she. <laughs> we have not settled on anyone yet. No one. No females yet throwing their yeah. name in the. We're working on, we're working on, everyone's going to have great. their chance. Don't worry. We're all getting there. Um, only 200 more folks to get through. Um, uh, I, I do. So I think maybe there's a chance that we'll be able to do a, uh, another CR and avoid it. They'll be shut down at some point pretty yeah. confident in that it just may not be over thanksgiving yeah okay i i don't want to go too far into predictions because i think we're both kind of at this place where we don't know what's going to happen there's no real path here um i do still think that the McHenry play is live um i've been sort of in that camp from the beginning that they're going to you know either empower McHenry or McHenry is going to become the de facto speaker so i'll just throw that marker in again at the end here that I think he's that's still a live option. She's just reminding us that, that was her pick from the very beginning <laughs> that Patrick McHenry was going to be the next speaker. So it doesn't seem like he's going to be the actual speaker, but we'll give you credit if he does get um, voted into some level of authority. Um, yeah, I I don't I don't really have a a prediction. Um, I guess I will say I'll be surprised if we have a speaker by the end of this week. Um, but I have seen so many times where, again, seemingly out of nowhere, they pivot, they all realize they need to stop doing whatever they're doing, and it can feel arbitrary in the moment, and people rally around something. So it could come out of nowhere, um, but I'm, I'm pretty skeptical that this is going to be resolved this week, and then we are getting into, like, not that we aren't really there, like the really silly territory where you're just staring down at a government shutdown and you don't have a speaker. Yeah, um, this is going to get really ugly. So I think we'll be back next time <laughs> because there's still a lot more uh, to cover and, and talk about. Um, but 
this has been uh, a wild week. I think this will be another one coming up. We will be watching. I know you all will as well. Thanks again for joining this week's episode of Control, and we will talk to you soon. Control is a production of Seven Letter, a leading strategic communications firm in Washington, D.C. and Boston, with deep experience in bipartisan public affairs, public relations, crisis management, digital strategy, and corporate engagement. Special thanks to our producer, Benji Englander. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Please join us next week for another episode, and don't forget to rate and review us. Thank you for listening.